Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. This Week in X-Men saw a whole lot of returns, whether it was Alan Davis to the pages of an X title, some surprising villains, or some unforgettable heroes, Giant-Sized Nightcrawler represented a humongous fan service to people like us here at the Social Council of Krakoa. That, of course, makes this We Are Krakoa. I'm Nico. I'm Dylan. I'm Kyle. I'm Regina. And I'm Jonah, and we hope you survived the experience similar to how Warlock is back. Yay! Right, like, so this was just, like, fan service for me, right? It was the good mastermind, it was the Sidri, it was Grey Malkin, it was basically an issue of Excalibur. I just, I just, just so happy. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hickman. Thank you, friend of the pod, Jay Hick. I want you to know that your work making me happy is keeping me afloat during this crazy time. So we have kind of an unusual situation going on where we're not exactly sure when the next round of X books are coming out. So rather than blow our wad on all five titles this week, we're going to be breaking these titles down across several weeks and taking a look back at the other titles that have built the dawn of X. This way, when books resume their normal shipping, everybody is caught up and ready to go. There wasn't a whole lot of news this week either. Despite the fact that Marvel is keeping pretty mum on everything, they did manage to announce that Oscar Balduza will be replacing still regular artist on X-Force, Joshua Kassara, on issue 11, whenever that should come out. I'm not sure exactly how that happened. I mean, I feel like Joshua Kassara probably has a lot of time to work right now, if he's anything like we are in the Northeast. This week, we're going to be covering Giant Size Nightcrawler, Haunted Mansion, written by Jonathan Hickman, story and words, Alan Davis with story and art, Carlos Lopez as the color artist, and VCs Clayton Cowles as the letterer. With books a little bit on delay, it makes a little bit more sense to slow down and really deep dive, especially into a book as super loaded as Giant Size X-Men Nightcrawler. Jonah, this had to be a dream come true for you. You got your fuzzy blue Banff and he's all over the place. He is. I am so happy that he got a title that is all about him. No, it was a, it was definitely an Ileana solo issue featuring Nightcrawler. It kind of was. And I'm not mad about that because I do love Ileana. Then I guess this should just be called Giant Sized Magic because this is not to take away from what Kurt did or I thought his amazingness in his role here. But this wasn't like the last Giant Size X-Men, which was just basically Jean and Emma saving Storm. Here, this was a lot more of a well-rounded cast where no one was hogging the spotlight. And I'm definitely really happy about that, showing characters getting their fair share of dialogue, characterization, all that good stuff that we want. I'm just confused that if you're going to title it Giant Size Nightcrawler, 
Nightcrawler might have been a little more prominent. And I'm just trying to figure out why is this a giant-sized Nightcrawler book given the extremely diverse cast that we were presented with? This might have done better as a different one-shot. But to be honest, even though I enjoyed the story, I was a little bit disappointed that we didn't have more of a focus on Nightcrawler. (laughs) Given that the story we got previously with Jean and Emma was clearly about Jean and Emma, I was really hoping for an actual solo focus on Nightcrawler instead of what we actually got. You know, that was a really good point. We had that powerful Nightcrawler story in X-Men number six, and I find myself kind of scratching my head as to where this falls exactly in canon with Lockheed running around And now Ileana seems to have caught... So Warlock, I mean, I don't want to jump, but like Warlock, like this was basically... This should have been called Giant Size Alan Davis. (laughs) Because this was just all of the characters Alan Davis loves to draw. (laughs) This was Nightcrawler, who he drew extensively throughout Excalibur. This was Doug and Warlock, who he is known for drawing in a New Mutants annual. It featured Hound Rachel. And a lot of that sort of, you know, it's sort of that way that Alex Ross is like, I'm never going to draw Kyle Rayner. It's it's kind of like that, where he's like, no, I only draw classic characters. Thank you very much. I feel like Alan Davis came in and was like, find room for Thunderbird. <laughs> and John Hickman was like, uh, and Alan Davis was like, I'm very British. Please find room for Thunderbird. Is it possible that maybe they named it Giant Size X-Men Nightcrawler because of his connections with Rachel and Thunderbird. But even then, the Thunderbird and Rachel moments were a huge fake out, and I would have appreciated something more with a little more substance, especially if you're going to give the name like that to Nightcrawler. I hear what you're saying, Kyle. I feel like if that was the reasoning, those two moments definitely should have been more premiered. Because this was, I mean, like, you could also call it Giant Size 1986. Like, this is just like a specific era. In a book. Instead of calling it Giant Size Magic or Giant Size Nightcrawler, I feel like Doug did more in this book than both Magic or Nightcrawler put together, so it really should have just been called Giant Size Cypher. In the middle of reading the book, Jonah just shouts out, uh, so Doug just fell in a butthole. (laughs) (laughs) He did! Now, I don't know that everybody here is familiar with all of the characters that appeared, so just a quick rundown. The team was initially... Nightcrawler, Ileana, Doug, and I can only imagine, Dylan, you were thrilled about their companion, right? Mm, sure. Yeah. iBoy is such a Jason Aaron thing that to still be in the X-Men right now. And Lockheed. And Lockheed. But Lockheed went on like a, I'm going to immolate the mansion kick. And then did nothing. And then did nothing. We also saw flashes of Thunderbird and Rachel in her hound form. And then it turned out the bad guys were the Sidri. For those of you not familiar with the Sidri, I would like to point to a really excellent arc of Uncanny X-Men by Chris Claremont. If you jump back through time to issues 154 to 161, you can actually take a look at the original Shi'ar Brood saga that ran through the pages of Uncanny X-Men, lovingly covered by Jonah, Dylan, and I in the Uncanny X backlog. And that's a great place to get a sense of the Sidri. If you're looking to know a little bit more about the Sidri and you're a fan of Stargate, think the Replicators. It's kind of like a gray goo situation. 
think this issue was just fan service. Like, does everybody need a little trans mode, a little trans mode Sidri toy now? Does everybody just need a little trans mode Sidri toy? Um, He's so cute. <laughs> I don't know what you have against my aesthetics, <laughs> Dylan, but we're coming to blows. I wasn't very happy with this story. It seems like a crappy filler story. And now I understand why Nightcrawler giant size was able to take Magneto's spot because I have no idea where this story fits into continuity with the rest of the Dawn of X because Lockheed is there. One thing that's like really bothering me is the fact that at the end of the book, Nightcrawler's happy about how they get to add one more mutant to Krakoa, but I'm really confused because Reagan was already on Krakoa in issue five of House of X when all the other villains came to Krakoa. So I'm really confused and it bothers me. She did mention that she'd used a gateway and that's how she had gotten stranded there. So she had already been a part of the Krakoan environment in the story. But I do get how he's like, oh, yay, one more is kind of like, no, you mean we got one back. It should be like, yay, we've reclaimed a mutant. Did anybody else feel though as though this was kind of like a stopgap issue? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I thought I was under the impression that the giant size titles were going to be covering this overarching story of how Storm contracted this techno virus from the Children of the Vault. And then this felt like it had nothing to do with that. Unless Reagan has going to be some huge key in the plan to figuring out what happened. I have no idea exactly how this fits in that narrative. And that's fine. It's just what is this doing? So the Children of the Vault, which is like a technologically advanced society of mutants, gave another mutant a virus. There could be something about like technological virus exchange. Maybe the Sidri and the Vault kids are all hanging out at some sort of weird robo party. Would the Children of the Vault even know about this hidden space of the X-Mansion at this point? I mean... I put nothing past Serafina. Okay. I find Serafina to be one of the most genuinely, potentially threatening things to the X-Universe. And it's really funny because I was thinking about the story that made the Children of the Vault popular. And I found myself thinking about, well, sure enough, an arc called Pandemic. And it had so much potential that didn't get realized as though Marvel wasn't ready to make a House of X, Powers of Ten, Dawn of X size jump. But I think one of the things that set giant size Nightcrawler apart for me was that in a period of time where we're talking about how every issue has too much going on, I kind of like that this didn't have enough going on. I perhaps didn't love the fake out that Rachel was just a Sidri construct, but feeling annoyed by a new villain every issue. Well, here we didn't get a new villain. We got an old villain and they're kind of at peace. But again, Doug keeps talking to like islands and machines and making deals with things. And I'm kind of uncomfortable by it. While this was the least sinister I have felt Doug presented, this is possibly the most furthering we've seen of that story. And I just keep thinking about how many phalanx and technarchy terms got used in Powers of Ten's future and knowing that Doug is housing Warlock on his arm and is the one communicating with the islands and the sentient robots, I find myself more poised than ever to think that Doug is, he's a menace. He, Cypher Man is a menace, you guys. You heard it here at the Krakoa Bugle. 
I am concerned that he stresses that nobody can know that Warlock is around. It does worry me a lot that there's more going on than we aren't aware of at this point. And I don't know how many people here are big fans of the Sienkiewicz New Mutants run the way I am. Regina, I know you're such a humongous Danny fan, so that era is so important to her character. And this group really is that era. And I kind of felt like Doug asking Ileana not to say anything was kind of him trading on the bond of their friendship from 20 years ago. Oh, definitely. Um, If it had been anybody but Ileana, there would have been, I think, more immediate repercussions. But because it was her and they had that bond of friendship, he knows that he can trust her to not say anything, at least for a while. And I don't know if it's just me, but going back to Ileana for just a minute, she has this knack for leadership. I don't think I've ever really seen her displaying when she was a younger character, not when she was a little girl, obviously, but just in previous books where she's been presented. But she has a knack for, I don't want to say manipulating people, but she'll present things in a way that makes them feel like they're in control. And I feel like she's the one that's actually in control. And I really love that. And we really got to see that here. But she kind of tells Nightcrawler, hey, this is what this is what the situation is. What do you want to do? And she presents it in a way that he kind of only has the one choice. And I just really like that they kind of keep bringing this out in her character. And we've seen that kind of before. I liked seeing it here very much. I agree. It's a really dynamic change because I feel like we see that a lot from Xavier. I feel like we see it a lot from a Magneto. But having a strong, confident woman who we watched grow up, we saw the changes in Ileana. And we saw her grow from Snowflake to fucking Blizzard. And I think... I really think that was a great way to put it. She makes the people she's leading feel more comfortable by kind of convincing them it was their idea. She's a powerful, dynamic leader, and I would truly believe she has a chance of running the X-Men one day. It's kind of funny that the person running the X-Men's name is Magic, but where the island seems to be heading, it makes a lot of sense. When the story opens, it it says it's Westchester, and the last time I remember talking about the mansion it was in central park did it get back to westchester and i just missed it or is this just fan service saying okay we've replaced it back in westchester <laughs> i think this has to be fan service just being like uh it's back where it goes shut up yeah i, th- I <laughs> yeah. think it's just fan service because yeah when i read it i thought that too i was like oh so are we forgetting the fact that the mansion was teleported by magic herself to central park It's kind of hard to talk about Nightcrawler without talking about Excalibur. Now, if not, of course, this Excalibur. This Excalibur is not so Nightcrawler-y. But the previous run of Excalibur, well, I guess now that I think about it, like 18 Excaliburs ago. So Excaligon Buys used to feature Nightcrawler pretty extensively. As a matter of fact, he's the only character to have appeared in all 125 issues of the original series. Subsequent series would go on not to feature Nightcrawler, but his presence would be felt. New Excalibur kicked off with an appearance by Nightcrawler where he then deposited his alternate universe daughter, Nocturne, because no one else in the Marvel Universe had any idea what to fucking do with her, and Chris Claremont was willing to give it a try. Nocturne is, like, the best goddamn character, so that no one can figure out how to use her vexes me to no end. Anyway, I'm off topic, wrong blue, back to this. 
I can't help but think about the recent run of Excalibur and how if you're like, oh man, I love classic X-Men. Let me do what the fuck is this Excalibur? It could be a little bit daunting to jump in. So I wanted to talk for a minute about Excalibur one through nine and just kind of get what everybody's been digging on and feeling or not feeling in this recent run. I know for me, the biggest disappointment was after the potentiality of Brian being a Lionheart, it was immediately pushed away. And that bummed me. I agree with that. They keep hinting at it, but all we get are one page, two page little tidbits. And I feel like it's eventually going to get there, but it's just taking too long, like we discussed last episode. I completely agree with you guys when it comes to Brian and his appearances in Excalibur so far. I just, I feel like since we've already had nine issues of Excalibur, I feel like there should have been a beginning and an end with Brian's story so far. And we're literally just getting like, hey, here's two or three pages of Brian and this weird story that we're doing with him. And now on to other things. And it's just like, just get it over in the first seven issues. So that could be a part of the first graphic novel of this Excalibur run. I love trade-oriented thinking in terms of capturing an audience's imagination. That's a really great way to look at it. Regina, Kyle, had you guys had a lot of experience with Brian as Captain Britain before Betsy? My limits of uh, Brian were pretty much up to the end of the cross-time caper in the original Excalibur. Other than that, I really haven't read anything of him. I haven't read his own book, so I, I really don't know what's going on with him. Most of my experience was also with the original run of Excalibur, and then of course, uh, when we see Betsy flashbacking when she's becoming Lady Mandarin and all of that, and they kind of talk a little bit about her relationship with Brian and how different they were when they were children. That's about the extent of my knowledge of him as well. I didn't read the original Captain Britain solo that he had way back in the day, but I I feel like I have a pretty good grasp of his character, and I really wish he was going to be playing maybe a bigger part in the Excalibur story. I think there's a lot more to be explored with his relationship with Betsy, and I've seen kind of how they go back and forth, and I remember there was, and I can't remember where I read it now, but there was a story where they basically were going to kill each other because of some type of conflict that they were having. And it was like very emotionally, you know, draining. Um, and I don't really... Was it the Remender X-Force? Probably. That's probably where it was. I didn't get that from what we've seen so far. I hope eventually we will get that because I do think that them being siblings and twins to boot, there's so much more that could have been done. And I I want to see that more. I think that with the X-Men, we have this failed family, but we also have ties with our adoptive and biological families. And I think that's worth exploring too. And I, I think sometimes outside of the Summers clan, we don't really get to see that that much. And this is, this is where we can explore it. And that's what I would like to see. I love that. This is where we can explore that. When it comes to Brian, I am probably the least knowledgeable about him as Captain Britain in his run in Excalibur. And when you're using the title of Excalibur, I feel like maybe the first thoughts are Captain Britain. And when you think Captain Britain, I think most people would assume it's Brian Braddock. I wish there was a little bit more of him, either... 
I wish there was either he's in this book and he plays a formative role with a story and then you can end it or he wasn't in it at all. I don't really like the blue ballsing about with is he here? What is he doing? Is he the Lionheart? What's going on? Why is he not talking to Megan? Why is he not with his child? All these different things that I don't understand. They just seem to just be teetering about with him. I would rather just see him either included or not. Uh, you got to pick a lane and you got to pick stick it stick to it. I am actually fascinated to see how everyone feels about Rogue. Because Rogue kind of got the short end of the stick where she was frozen for five issues and now she's just back and there hasn't been a lot of talking about that. I was disappointed with the first several issues where she is kind of frozen and she's sleeping beauty and all of that. I do think that when she came back, she had a very strong return. We got to see her and Gambit discussing what their future plans are for a family or not a family. And she is figuring out who she is in her new role as a new spouse, a new partner. Marriage is a weird thing. You think it doesn't really mean that much, but when you get married, it, it does mean something. And that can be oppressive for certain people. I don't feel like she's been oppressed by her marriage. I'm not going to say that she was set free by her marriage, but I do think that she's trying to figure out who she is now with this life that she's sharing with this man that she's been in love with for so long. But then we kind of pulled back from that. And I want to see my strong girl back. <laughs> she got the outfit for it now. She sure does. Oh my God. And like the way that like that, that it's just so good because it's got like a military feel to it, yet it still feels regal. Like Rogue is a warrior queen and it's kind of insulting to think of her as less she's so much more than that but i feel like in many ways while her iconic bodysuits were always beautiful they lacked the regal power of this new costume and i agree with you i want to see her rise to the occasion now that she's being given the chance to shine with the costume change i feel kind of like some of her old like body hugging costumes while they were very beautiful very sexy very sassy which is her character this outfit kind of makes her look like a, a commander. And I love that. I love the little buttons and oh, I just love all of it. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely upset that she pretty much got fridged for the first five issues. But when she came back, that was pretty awesome. And... I'm enjoying that they are exploring her and Gambit's relationship. I question the timing of some of that exploration, especially when they're in the middle of missions. It's it's a little weird when they're with their teammates and all of a sudden they're like sneaking off and having their their fun time um (laughs) i know know. sometimes you just got to go behind the barracks and do what's got to be done fine fine but yes i i have to echo that i absolutely love her new her new look it's just such a great update to what she has previously worn and while i'm still a little weirded out by the cape made out of war wolves it's um it all kind of comes together which is which is nice I want to echo the werewolf cape. Like, it looks cool, but also, like, we killed a bean and now we're wearing it around. So I'm not sure how I feel about that. Yes, I know that werewolves hunt mutants and kill them, but 
still. <laughs> it's a little weird to me. I hated the fact that Rogue was put on a shelf for the first few issues of Excalibur, but when she came back, she's the only one that that part of the story could have been written for, or only beaten, that could have been used to take down Apocalypse like that. So that was awesome. I feel like once that part happened with Apocalypse, I, I kind of wish that Rogue and maybe even Gambit and possibly Jubilee would have left the team because I really feel like they are not being utilized the best way that they could. But I do want to say I am not a huge Gambit fan, but since Mr. and Mrs. X and these first couple issues of Excalibur, I do like seeing the non just I'm happy <laughs> creepy skanky whatever <laughs> I'm glad Gambit isn't just the person that he has been and that he's actually growing and that you can tell that he's growing from his marriage with Rogue and so speaking of that I wanted to ask what everyone else's thoughts were on characters like Gambit and Jubilee being a part of Excalibur even though the kind of really could have been replaced with any other character because they haven't really done that much. I think it's more of that like n like throwback fandom kind of thing. I don't know what a lot of these characters have in common beyond the 90s. And in that regard, maybe they're all together to help sell a team as an idea. For my sake, I think the only characters that are a part of this official team really getting utilized in a new way are Psylocke, Apocalypse, Rogue, and... I'm going to say Richter. Richter's kind of getting the most exposure of any of these sort of minor, like, relegated to the background characters now that he's a mutant magic druid. Okay, I'm there. I'm with you. But Jubilee doesn't seem to have a whole lot to do other than her baby is magic. And Gambit doesn't have a whole lot to do except his wife is magic. And you know what? No, for fuck's sake, please let a man be secondary to his powerful wife. No problem. But then he's kind of crowding up space that I think Pete Wisdom could fill out better. Gambit doesn't need to be in every issue to support Rogue. Rogue can be on her own. She's a strong woman. And yeah, it does feel like there's a lot of background characters just filling up the space. Richter's the only one treading new ground. I would agree with I hundred, yeah. <laughs> the reason I didn't mention Richter when I said Rogue and Gambit and Julie is because Richter, I feel like, is being given that druid magic that is connecting him to Excalibur in so many ways and connecting them to Apocalypse. And I feel like he's, like people say when they talk about TV shows, he's getting a good edit and Jubilee and Gambit are not. Jubilee and Gambit will not be in the top three. I've said multiple times that I do not find Jubilee's behavior during the series to do well for her, her character. I don't feel like she treats Shogo well. She acts very immature whenever it comes to dealing with him, unless he gets into trouble. I can't even figure out what Shogo's doing here because I feel like cute baby dragon was already replaced by cute baby warwolf. Right. <laughs> Other than the whole factor of him being able to disrupt other worlds with his fire. We're all burning fire. Yeah. As for Gambit, uh... I don't really see why he needs to be in this book other than to follow Rogue around. All he's done is complain about Apocalypse, complain about Rogue's situation, and then he's just kind of there once she's back. So a lot of these characters here are very new for me. I even I haven't even gotten to their original appearances over on Uncanny. 
but it's something about Bit Gambit just makes me kind of mad. Uh, he always just seems like he has a chip on his shoulder and something just like, he's mad about something every issue and I'm not sure why. I am really concerned that they're just giving him the very angry edit and he's kind of playing the hardball kind of character here. Jubilee, Jubilee, Miss Firecracker, uh, Miss Badass, Boom Boom, not Boom Boom. I I guess my biggest problem with a lot of the cast is, well, why are they here outside of convenience? I understand why Rogue was there, and I understand why Betsy and as Captain Britain is there. As for everyone else, and I understand why Richter is there. For everyone else, it kind of feels like, well, we kind of have to fill out this team a little bit more, and they didn't really know exactly who they wanted to use. It feels like if there was a more concrete cast with more, with better reasoning for being on this team and adventuring to and from Otherworld, I would have an easier time enjoying these stories. Yeah, I kind of agree with the assertion that Jubilee is kind of behaving a little bit immaturely. We've seen Jubilee in other books being a mother and being very strong and handling the situation and really seeing her grow up. And she's kind of regressed some here and she's all about, oh yeah, you know, let's throw the baby at Megan and let's go out and have drinks. And, you know, I, I just don't think that that's actually how she would respond given her prior characterizations and how much she does love and care about Shogo. You know, kind of towards the beginning of the run, she has a nightmare about Apocalypse taking Shogo and saying, you know, well, this is a human child and, you know, we really don't want him here and kind of being sinister about it. And that was, I thought, a great characterization of her fears as his mother. But then we don't see her reacting after that the way that you would think she would. So that is a little bit disappointing. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly what's going on there with the regression. I don't like it, but that is something that I would like to see rectified that, you know, she is a mature, strong mother, even though she kind of took over this role as Shogo's mother unexpectedly. She's done a great job until now taking care of him and protecting him and nurturing him. And I kind of really don't like the way that this is being handled in this book. And then speaking to Gambit, his character is not really what I was expecting either. He is a very cavalier type character. He's kind of a fun character if you know what you're doing with him. A lot of people, I think, don't really know how to write him well. There have been some writers who have done an amazing job bringing him forward. And I'm not really seeing that here. He's kind of devolved into kind of like this for lack of a better word, whiny man-child. I understand that he would be very worried about his wife. I think he would be worried about her whether they were married or not. But the way that it was presented was not what I feel that his character would be reacting. The only thing about Gambit that I really have enjoyed is his skepticism of Apocalypse. I think that he recognizes Apocalypse is not as into the Krakoa thing as it seems that he is. He's on the Quiet Council. He's got a lot of power. Gambit, I think Gambit is right to be skeptical of him and to, but I think he would have been smart enough to kind of keep that to himself instead of being so out with it and kind of utilize his experience as a thief to kind of maybe just kind of spy, like I'm going along with you, I'm not really saying anything, I'm just looking to see how this is going to play out because I know there's something sinister going on. I think that would be more in his character than what we're getting. 
especially considering he was horsemaned at one point. Right. He was one of, like he would know better. He knows not to approach apocalypse so publicly and openly. That's a great point. Right. Um, so I that's kind of where I'm going with with him and kind of wanting to see better for him. If he's going to be part of this team, he's got to pull his weight. And I don't think I've seen him do that yet. Speaking of apocalypse. <laughs> I really like that in this book, we kind of do see Apocalypse being more who we expect him to be than when he's on the Quiet Council and he's kind of like, oh, you know, I'm pro-mutant, I'm pro-Krakoa. In this specific book, we get to see him pursuing his own agenda. And that's more of the Apocalypse that I think should be being presented. We see Sinister pursuing his own agenda. We see it constantly. It's that constant undercurrent. Um, If you didn't read Excalibur, you wouldn't know that Apocalypse has this whole other thing that he's doing. So I think that's important for the the entire storyline as well. I agree completely, especially because he and Betsy are playing such opposites right now. Betsy is like, it's whatever it takes to further the cause. And Apocalypse is like, "Mm, it's actually whatever secretly furthers my cause. And by having such a strong opponent for Betsy in Apocalypse, it really does elevate him because you're right. In X-Men, he's unopposed. Xavier's like, nah, I'm chill with this. And Magneto's like, nah, I'm chill with this. And I have to wonder if it's because, like, Moira's secretly in charge of them all or something. (laughs) But I do agree there is something real lax about the presentation of Apocalypse everywhere else. And here... I feel like this is the apocalypse that I I hate and despise. Daddy A has been making uh, his rounds in the books. And in Excalibur, he's playing a very interesting role because I don't know everything that he's done besides like merging with Scott and being a total douchebag most of the time. I find that he's playing a very delicate con, and I don't think he's like a con artist or a double agent, but he's definitely doing everything for his own agenda while still not treading on the toes of Krakoa, because it does genuinely seem he likes the idea of Krakoa, and he's like, finally, mutants realize they're better than everyone else. But he's still like, well, I'm still Apocalypse, and I have things I need to do right now. And whether or not Krakoa knows or likes about it, tough shit. So I'm very fascinated to see if everything is going to blow up in Apocalypse's face, or if everyone's just going to come to love him, and he's just this big, hulking, blue, magic daddy guy that everyone is just like, yeah, he's a little bit of the creepy uncle, but if you give him a body to dissect, he's fine. I don't trust him. I'm pretty sure he's going to turn on all the X-Men. I personally feel like he's grooming Richter to become some sort of horseman. And I don't like the name change. You know, I'm actually looking at, I have all of the Mueller variants, the logo variants up on my wall in my studio. And I can't help but notice how the A is so dynamic in these new logos. It's this big A with an X through it. And... Changing his name to the letter A becomes symbolic the way X is symbolic. I feel as though Professor X and the X-Men and the X-Gene, Xavier kind of rules the mutant terminology by the virtue of his letter. And it almost feels like Apocalypse is creating a counter. Actually, I came first. I'm A. And I'm in the Krakoan language. 
I don't love the name change because it's very the artist formerly known as Apocalypse, but I think there's something to be said about the symbology of simplicity in that it's a single letter. Apocalypse does worry me a lot. The fact that he set up Jamie as a puppet ruler of other worlds, the fact that he's really not scared of Jamie's powers at all and speaks down to him, that kind of terrifies me. Having him in this book, it does feel like this is the true Apocalypse compared to all of his other appearances in the Dawn of X titles. So I have to ask, where do people think that Excalibur is leading to in the uh, overarching story of Dawn of X? So I'm going to talk to Excalibur like it's a contestant on a reality show real fast. Excalibur, I love the work you're doing, but I just don't really know the real you yet. And number two, I just don't feel like I understand who you are as a comic. What's your point of view? With that all out of the way, for me, Excalibur has been very middle of the road. It's been basically the safe contestant that's kind of been skating by until you don't have a chance to not skate them by. I find that Excalibur consistently has the attached saying of, it has plenty of potential to do great, but it's not reaching it. And I don't know how many more weeks are we going to wait for it to be banging real good. I think that we're going to be seeing a lot more Apocalypse. With them moving towards Opaluna Saturnine, I see it possibly turning into a challenge between the two of them as the ruler of the multiverse. And that kind of is scary. I would be fascinated to see Apocalypse think he could handle that. But you know what? The guy got all these powers through celestial technology. And it's very possible he thinks that, you know, he could hang in on this. To your earlier point, if he's not afraid of Jamie, that is pretty worrisome because Jamie, um, Jamie's insane and way too powerful. And that is something I actually do think Jamie could take on Apocalypse. So I don't know why Apocalypse isn't afraid. I also think that Excalibur is going to find itself a lot of the starting point for X of Swords. If for no other reason, Betsy and Brian both have pretty banging swords. And I do believe it would make sense to put them in that crossover with them. So I think Excalibur is going to help kick things off for this amazing crossover that we're heading toward. And it's amazing because I love swords. To me, also, it just seems like the book that is like, we're going to get there, we're going to get there, but it hasn't. So far, it's seemed like the Betsy and Slightly Apocalypse show that has the guest appearances of the other characters and then the weird little Brian story that goes nowhere. I love all of these characters. Jubilee and Betsy have been some of my favorite characters since I was little and I absolutely loved seeing that they were going to be on a book together and like I mentioned Nico before Excalibur came out it's awesome that Betsy and Jubilee and Rogue and Gambit who are four characters that were all a part of the blue X-Men team back in the 90s are all on a book together. I just keep wanting more to happen in each Excalibur issue, and it still doesn't get there. So I just want it to finally get there. So far, I mean, the individual stories, 
I've enjoyed reading them and exploring them. But yeah, there's just something that's not cohesive enough, I think, to really pull everything together. I wish we had a more cohesive story. I wish we had something that we really felt that we were building towards instead of kind of this hodgepodge of, okay, well, we're going to deal with three different issues in one story and then we're going to go to this other thing and, you know, fight this guy who is the brother of somebody that we really love and he's kind of a dick and then we're going to go do something else. And I just wish that there was a stronger theme. I think when we first started we did have something that was more cohesive and a stronger story. And then it just kind of petered out. I think that there's a lot of value in what we do have presented. I just wish it was pulled together a little bit more. So this week, we took a look at Giant Size X-Men Nightcrawler, which was basically a fan service letter to people who love the original Excalibur run, who are fans of Nightcrawler, and different characters uh, around that time during the 80s. I don't think anybody thought it was bad here, mostly just some confusing plot points, where this fits into continuity, and kind of confusing like revelations. Overall, not bad at all, and had some pretty cool moments, I might say. We also took a retrospective look at Excalibur, and the feelings are pretty mutual amongst everyone here that Excalibur has been lacking for a while, and without Fallen Angels to be really below it, it's starting to show the flaws just a little bit more. Hopefully they can pick up and really deliver to us Excalibur, whether it's an homage to what the original title meant, or bringing something new and fresh to this title that new fans can fall in love with. Kyle, what will we be taking a look at next week? Next week, uh, we are going to be covering X-Men Fantastic Four number three, as well as a look back at Marauders 1 through 9. But until next time, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. Dylan, where can everybody find you? Everybody can find me on Facebook at my X-Men group that Regina helps me moderate that is called House of X, or you can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan, that is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Regina, where can everyone find you? You can find me on Twitter at the Red Queen underscore G or Instagram at the Red Queen underscore on underscore IG and in House of Goblin Queen on Facebook. Jonah, where can everybody find you? You could find me making deals with the Sidri and not telling anybody important about it over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. Nico, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me every Monday and Thursday with these amazing folks on all the feeds of X is for Podcast, as well as HTML with my husband Kevo on Tuesdays. Don't forget to check out my Instagram, NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And until next time, guys, we'll see you. Bye. 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 Goodbye. Okay.